you turn tonight to Genesis chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 17. This part of the book of Genesis, uh, as I began last Sunday evening, is perhaps one of the more controversial parts of the book of Genesis because it contains the account of Noah's flood. And as we'll dig into the whole concept of the flood in the next several studies, and in fact we're going to do a multi-part series on the flood itself, it's that important, because it reshaped the face of the planet. And as it did so, it wiped away the evidence of all things that were before it. So the world that we see today is the evidence of after the flood. We have no evidence before the flood. So everything that you see today, all of the processes, erosion, sedimentation, decomposition, radioactive decay rates, all of those kinds of things were altered. Any evidence that there was has been completely transformed and changed by a global event. And so we'll take these things in some cases scientifically and look at them, and in some cases we'll look at them pragmatically where you believe either that there is a creator God, that creator God did literally shape the face of the world and then chose to destroy it because of man's sin. And that causes a problem for people as they read the book of Genesis because this event is so catastrophic that God is going to now say something in these next several verses that seems almost unthinkable to us in the light of a New Testament understanding of God. Because a New Testament understanding of God says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet here in Genesis chapter 6, God is going to completely say, I am going to destroy absolutely everything except for eight people and a representation of the animal world and the botanical world. And so it almost looked like God is going against his character and his nature. And here's the problem that it creates for many people. If God is sovereign, why did he choose to do it this way? That's the general question that comes up for most of the events that follow here in the book of Genesis. It's like, couldn't God have just thinned out the population two or three people at a time and you get into all kinds of subtle nuances about why God didn't do it this way versus that way? And I think as we begin to embark on this study uh, of the Genesis flood, you'll see that God is perfectly wise, that he's perfectly just, he had a perfect plan all along, And in fact, Noah needed to trust in God's perfect plan. And that plan begins to unfold tonight. So we'll pick up in verse 17, and a study I've entitled, The Plans of God and Noah's Obedience. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't call you up and ask you what you want to do? He doesn't check in with you and... See if you're okay with the things that he has planned for your life. Have you ever noticed that there are things that come into your life that you go, I really wish you had not allowed that. Or I kind of sort of thought you could do it another Everybody had that experience? Now imagine that on a global scale. God is God. He sees beyond the things that you see. He sees the th- beyond the things that I see. And so he is going to see that in all of humankind... There is only hope 
in eight people's lives. That is really tough for us to wrap our minds around. That out of all of humanity, that ultimately God is going to see perish everyone except for eight people. And yet that's the case. So God's sovereignty comes into view tonight for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. It's amazing power to communicate truth to us because it is truth. These words were authored by you and we pray uh, that you would strengthen us as we receive them, Lord. Help us to know uh, your goodness, your mercy, that, Lord, it is not so much a wonder that you destroyed all of the life that was on the earth except for these eight people, but that there was any that were able to be saved. Because that's really our story. That you would save any of us is a miracle. And so, Lord, we pray that now you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17, Genesis chapter 6. And behold, I myself... And bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That is just hard for us to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. When I think of the character and nature of God, when I think of the wonder of God, when I think of the beauty of God, when I think of even His holiness and His justice, when I think of His mercy, His grace, when I think of how He's treated me, it's very hard for me to understand. And yet, here in plain view for us is God's plan to destroy almost every single human being on the face of the earth. But look what comes next. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. And I want you to notice there's two different words translated into English. The first one is sort, the second one will be kind. And there's a reason for that. There's a slight, subtle difference here in the original language that seems to indicate that God is actually pointing out to us that in order for all of the life that was on the earth to have a representation, you did not need to bring every last single species of everything onto the ark. And so he uses a very subtle change to indicate a sort, which would be a better word, would be a representation of all of the basic kinds. And so we'll get to the science of taxonomy a little bit tonight. The naming and classification of animal life. Actually, plant life as well. He goes on to say this. To keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. The birds after their kind. And now you see the word kind. So he's being a little more specific extremely general when he says of each sort or every sort. Birds after their kind, that means very specifically just birds. Animals after their kind, 
and of every creeping thing after its kind. And then notice what is said next, and this is tremendously important to this particular passage because it gives us a little insight into what mankind would not actually discover uh, for the better part of 3,500 years or so. And that's the science that we now know as genetics. And two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. In essence, God is saying, I've programmed into these animals a migratory instinct and they are going to come to you. That God has actually pre-programmed them to do exactly what he wants them to do when he wants them to do it. And we see evidence of that remaining in the animal kingdom yet to this day. And we'll take a look at some of that tonight. And you shall take for yourself all food that is eaten. And you shall gather it unto yourself. And it shall be food for you and for them. So Noah is charged with the task of bringing plant life, animal life, onto the ark, the animals are going to come to him. The plant life he's going to gather, and he's going to gather enough for his family, and he's going to gather enough for the animals themselves. And thus Noah did circle it. One of the more important verses in all of the Old Testament, God said it, Noah did it. Oh, that we could learn that lesson from this passage and we could just all go home. When God tells you to do something, if you want to know the quickest way to success in your spiritual walk, do it. That is God's heart and that is why we're looking at Noah's obedience in this. Because this whole thing seems absurd, it seems impossible, It seems like God couldn't possibly mean what he's saying right here. But God is saying, nonetheless, do it. And Noah, by faith, steps out and actually does exactly what God asked him to do. The secret to spiritual success for all of us. And notice how he does it. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. He didn't say, well, I like part one and part seven, and I'm pretty good with 12 and 23, and of the things you told me, I like nine out of the 37, and I'm going to do those. Of all that God commanded him, he did. This is a picture, a New Testament picture, of how we're to handle everything that God says. I often get into discussions with people about life behaviors, habits, things that are marginally talked about in Scripture as to whether they might be sin or not be sin or be a liberty or be something that one person would look at in a legalistic way. I get into conversations and they're generally based on this one principle. They really don't want to do what God has told them to do. So they look for excuses or what I call Christian loopholes in the Word of God that allows them to go down a train of thought that, though it's not perfectly theologically correct, it has enough little bits and pieces and parts in it that they can justify their sin. And of all that God commanded, Noah did 
every last bit of it. Secret to success. Doing what God tells you to do. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't give us ill-advised commands. He doesn't prohibit things that are good for you. And he does not keep good things from you. What he says he means, and when he says it, he definitely means it. And if he's spoken on any issue in your life, it is not up to us to determine whether it meets our criteria for following it or not. It is up to us to simply say, yes, Lord, here am I, your servant, and I will obey. It sounds like, oh, it's one of those passages. But it's beautiful. I think most of us, if we're honest, will say that we struggle with God's sovereign actions in our lives from time to time. I know I do. I'll just tell you that straight up. When children die of cancer, I don't have an answer. When parents ask me why, I can't tell you. I cry with you because I, I don't know. But I so fully trust God that I have to commit that thought in my mind, which is why God, to what God? What do you want to do? If you allow this, then you must have a purpose. If you would do this, then something is at work, and it must be something that needs to be done this way, because if it could be done some other way that was what we would call less harsh or maybe less painful or less difficult, we would naturally assume that God would do it that way. But God at times works through immense pain. God works through incredible disaster. God allows Christians' homes to burn to the ground. God allows Christians to die in automobile accidents. God allows Christians to go to war and be killed in action. God allows Christians to get the very most violent kinds of cancer. God allows people to develop Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and things that we would just go, God, we're your children. Why would you ever allow your children to go through these things? We struggle with God's sovereign plans. And I would encourage you, whatever God says to do and whatever God allows, go with it. Because he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't mistake, make mistakes in his justice and judgment. And he doesn't make mistakes in his implementation. So when he does something, it will be absolutely perfect even if you can't see it. Because he's God. God's provision of salvation is linked here directly to the obedience of Noah. While we are saved by grace and through faith, you must receive the free gift of eternal life. And so the obedience on your part is to believe by faith that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, died on Calvary's cross, was raised three days later, and therefore is the Savior of the world, and His sacrifice and His bloodshed on Calvary's cross is sufficient to remove the debt of sin that you owe, thereby clearing your account with God so that you can spend eternity in heaven with God. That is a faith thing, but it still requires your obedience. You have to receive it. A lot of times people, they, they so dumb down grace 
that they make it almost like everyone is automatically going to get it, even if they don't believe it. Or if the Word says that if you do this, but God really doesn't mean that. No, what God commands, God expects. And when he has commanded something, you can also expect the other side of it, which is you are likely going to experience things in your life that you won't like unless you're obedient. We're not exactly told when Noah got these instructions, uh, but he's got some time because he's going to spend 120 years uh, building the ark. Going to be going on for more than a century And so here's the beautiful grace of God. Here's the mercy of God. For 120 years, Noah's out there with this pile of lumber in his front yard where there is no sea, it had never rained, and every day he's given testimony, God told me this is how it's gonna go. And so all of his neighbors heard Noah proclaiming the good news of the gospel All you've got to do is be saved. All you've got to do is get in the ark. All you've got to do is believe, and you can be spared from this. God's made provision for the eight people, but he's also made an opportunity for everyone else. But nobody was obedient. God wanted repentance. God wanted a turning. Remember, he's already declared that everyone on the face of the earth was involved in evil. Their hearts were towards violence. The the place is a mess. And so God gives 120 years of Noah, in essence, preaching so the people have time to change their minds. So even in this justice and judgment, we see the mercy of God and we see a very visible representation of the gospel and a very visible representation uh, of the mercy of God by grace, through faith. Because anyone who would have changed their minds, I guarantee you God will let on the ark. And there would have been another chapter in here about those who turned at Noah's preaching. But the fact of the matter is they didn't. They wouldn't hear of it. And that is similar to the world that we are in today. The world is going in two opposite directions. You have the body of Christ headed towards heaven and you have those who are unbelievers headed the opposite direction So much so that Christians are largely being blamed for just about everything on the planet from global warming to the wars in the Middle East to the economic downturn. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're responsible for everything because we believe in Jesus. Why? Because they have no choice but to either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're right, that means that they have been wrong. If I'm right, if the Bible is correct, that this world is winding down, then there's a date stamp on this planet. And God's saying, you can believe me or not believe me. So in some ways, you can see also the age of grace in this passage. In this case, the age of grace was 120 years. But God meant what he said. And he carried through on exactly what he said he was going to do. As you look at this, there's a couple of words in here that are important to the narrative of this story. 
God's plan, though it was to recognize the wrong and for people to repent, they didn't want to go that way. And so humanity chose for itself death. They chose destruction. Verse 17 is very unique. There are only three other times that this particular word is used or a combination of words uh, that, that express this flood, these flood waters. And so I'll remind you again in proper biblical interpretation, the study of hermeneutics, there is a law called the law of first mention. And the first time that something is mentioned in Scripture, it becomes the backdrop or becomes the definition for all further instances of that word unless there's a reason given or a context given for it to mean something else. And because this word is used so very few times, it's very clear exactly what God was saying because by the time you get it translated into the New Testament, it's actually translated into the Greek word kataklysmos or cataclysm. So notice what it says, Behold, I myself am bringing the flood waters. And that's actually two words. It's actually flood of waters. It is mabul, mayem in Hebrew. And it simply means this cataclysmic event. It was directly attached to an Assyrian word that actually means destruction. So God wasn't messing around. He wasn't talking about a little localized flooding. He was not talking about the rivers flowing over their banks. He wasn't talking about some heavy rain. He was literally talking about a destructive event that would wipe out the earth. And so as we dig into the flood, we'll bring all the evidences. Has that ever happened and can we see it on the world that we uh, have today? And I think we'll see that actually we can see it. In other words, there's going to be a cataclysm of water. It's going to be unlike anything that had ever been seen before. And it was so unbelievable because it had not rained. And so mankind is sitting there going, well, how's God going to do that? Can I tell you that people have the same feeling about eternal life? And you say, well, you know, when I die, I die, and I'm just going to go back to dust. Or everybody goes to the happy place. People make up their own understanding of eternal things very often. When God has actually said, no, there's a choice, it's heaven and hell. And again, we probably, most of us in this room, would wish that everyone goes to heaven, I think. You may have a few people in your life that you'd like to exclude, but most of us, I think if we're honest, would say, okay, I want everybody to go to heaven, even the people I don't like. But it's hard for us to think about God allowing anybody to perish. And yet Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven. Jesus himself talked more about hell than he did about heaven. So if Jesus thought it was real, and he doesn't want anybody to go there, then you might want to, of all that God commands, do it. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To him who believes will be given eternal life. It's to believe those things. It's to do those things. This would be a flood like no other. 
when the Genesis flood is referred to there by Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse and the same passage from Luke's perspective and then by Peter uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2. All three occasions in the New Testament uh, referring to this particular event, the Greek word meaning cataclysm is what is used, a cataclysm of water. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in very extreme water situations. I have been in a flash flood in a slot canyon. And if any of you know what that is, if you go to southern Utah principally or any part of the desert southwest, and all of a sudden those monsoonal storms come up from the Gulf of Mexico, extremely moist, heavy, laden clouds, and they open up and dump 10, 12 inches of rain uh, in a matter of 35, 40 minutes, and you happen to be in the bottom of one of those very narrow canyons, you are looking at death. And I, I remember particularly one time when we were hiking through a slot canyon and you could watch the thunderstorm come in, and as the clouds opened up, uh, we started hoofing it to the top of the ridge. By the time we got up on the top of this bluff, in the bottom of the canyon where we were standing, there was at least 30 to 40 feet of water in a matter of a couple of minutes. And so when we talk about a cataclysm, it destroys everything. It erases every bush and tree because that water is moving. You know, people think of a gentle rain. No, this is going to be a cataclysm. God's intent is to reshape the face of the earth and to destroy all life. So when we get to that, and he says the fountains of the deep open up, this is not like a little rainstorm and it kind of builds up a little bit. God is going to drown the planet because his intent is to destroy absolutely everything that is not saved. A picture of salvation versus not being saved. And both are by faith. And both are covered by atonement. Remember, as we saw last time, the pitch, the word kofar or kafar, means to cover it. It, it, it is a picture of our salvation believed by grace or by faith and, and giving us grace so that we might be covered from the flood. Because that the flood of hell is a whole bunch worse than the flood of waters. Amen? It's a flood like no other. It's going to destroy two principal things. All flesh that has the breath of life from under heaven and then all life that is on the planet. So remember, he's saying here, they have the, the breath. In other words, they have the spirit and they have the eternal spirit, those who are human beings. And then you have those that are animals, which do not have the spirit of God because only man was made in God's image. So man has a spirit. And I know for a lot of you, you're thinking about your pets and all those kind of things. I'll leave it at this. The Bible says very clearly that only man has a spirit that is eternal. But I can also tell you God loves you so much that if you need your dog in heaven, uh, I don't know why God wouldn't do that. However, I cannot back that up with Scripture, okay? So do not quote me on it. So... The Bible is clear that man alone was created with the Spirit of God. He breathed his own literal eternal spirit into man. 
animal received the breath of life, which is life as we know it, consciousness, emotion. That's why your dogs can smile and they wag their tails and greet you. They're nice to you when people don't even like you. Cats, not so much. At least not mine. All right, I, I actually like my cats. Sort of. Sometimes. Every once in a while. We've actually got two old cats and older cats, and they're, they're actually kind of funny. One sort of owns our house. Let, she lets us stay there. When she's done with us being there, she tells us she wants us to leave. <laughs> we see next the first covenant made with mankind, verse 18. For I will establish my covenant with you, and you will go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your son's wives with you. Now, this word covenant, again, law first mentioned, first time uh, that we see the word bereth. Uh, here in, in the book of Genesis, it's the first time it's mentioned. And it's a covenant. All of the covenants that God will make with the children of Israel were all conditional covenants. They were based that mankind was to respond to God and God would do certain things when mankind responded. That changed with the new covenant because it's based by our acceptance of God's gift of eternal life. We believe by faith resulting in grace which gives us forgiveness of sin. So this is the first of the many covenants that God's going to make with mankind. It is the only one that's made before the flood. And so he says, I'm going to make a covenant. It's going to be fully explained when we get to chapter 9. So it's only briefly mentioned here. Uh, and it'll be elaborated on uh, in some detail uh, there in chapter 9. But God knew that none from that generation would be converted, and yet He still makes a covenant with them. Because that's the way God works. He said, I'm going to make the covenant with you even though I already know most of you will not keep it. Even though I know that some of you will directly disobey it, Again, you have in view God's sovereign plans, His foreknowledge, uh, His predestination. All of those New Testament doctrines are actually in view here in the Old Testament. Because God is making conditional promises to Noah and to his family. And He's going to say, if you will do this, I will do this. It, it's a beautiful picture of how the Lord has always made promises to us. And he's given us the opportunity to use our choice correctly. And now the only thing you need to choose is Jesus. And beyond that, everything else is grace, mercy, faith. Yes, we need to be responsible to the things that the Lord tells us to do. But you are saved by one thing and one thing alone, and that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else after that is a result of the grace that you receive from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what enables you by faith to keep his commands. That's what enables you to walk not in the flesh but in the spirit. That all comes to us now by faith. Instead of keeping uh, the commands uh, that, that in that day and time would have kept them from perishing. God basically fulfilled those commands with Jesus on the cross and said, your sins are wiped out. What we have in this passage is the seemingly impossible there's instructions for the preservation of all these animals, and, and you, you kind of think to yourself, are you kidding me? 
Because it says in verse 19, uh, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort. And I want to spend a little time talking about this particular thing because this is one of those places where the world just goes, are you trying to tell me that on the ark was every last living, breathing animal and representation and insect and all those kind of things? And the answer to that is absolutely not. That's not what's said here. And that's why the broader definition of sort is used and then associated with a much more precise kind. God is very wise, understands that he is programmed into DNA inside of these animals, all kinds of genetic variation that through mutation and through time spent uh, on this earth and from characteristics that are necessary and, and are useful and beneficial as you live in any particular climate, uh, as we see in the bird world today, wings get longer and plumage gets different color. Dogs do the same thing with fur length. Uh, there's, there's just a million things that we could talk about. Uh, God is basically saying what I need on the ark is a representation uh, of the basic kinds, the sorts of animals. And so God creates within these animals the desire to get on the ark. And so what God is doing, he's kind of laying out what would not really be codified uh, until a couple of hundred years ago, and it's the, the modern science of taxonomy or the classification of animal life and biologic life. Interestingly enough, if you look at the fossil record, and what, and again, this is not the mysterious missing parts of the fossil record that evolutionists would say must have existed because we couldn't have the animals we have unless everything evolved from single-celled green algae uh, some 14.7 billion years ago as the earth kind of became part of this big bang explosion and and developed over time and then some nearly four billion years ago uh, here comes this nice blue planet with some water on it. And then after a period of some additional billions of years, there are some basic life forms on here. You see what evolutionists would say is there has to be a whole bunch of things missing because we couldn't have gotten from point A to point B unless there's a whole bunch of stuff missing. The bottom line is there wasn't a whole bunch of stuff missing. It actually happened exactly as the fossil record looks which is at the Cambrian explosion some 465 to 485 million years ago, if you're an evolutionist, virtually every single living phylum came into existence in one period of time. That's what the fossil record actually shows. And so the science of naming things starts with kingdoms. It moves then to phylums, then to classes, orders, families, then genus and species. And so we happen to be, from an evolutionary view of someone was going to talk about us. We are Homo sapiens. That's our, that's our genus and species. And so that's a very specific classification. But we're part of a much broader group of people, uh, or a much broader group of classification, if you want to look at it that way. If you look at it from an evolutionary view, we're actually part of the primate class, right? We descended from monkeys, so the bottom line is that in God's eye view, he's not going to bring every species of, you know, we don't need Brahma bulls and Angus cattle and Holsteins. He needs a representation of cows on the ark. 
He needs a representation of the horse family on the ark. He needs a representation of the pig family. He doesn't need pigs and warthogs and, you know, Chester Whites. And, you know, we don't need all of those things. We need the genetics of a pig. We need the genetics of a horse. We need the genetics of the basic species of birds that we have. We need the genetics of all of the basic sorts of animals on that ark. We do not need absolutely every single one. So when you look at it currently, and again, bear in mind that I'm being very specific here. If you look at mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians alive today, plus every single thing that we have in the fossil record, there's only about 18,000 of them. People will say, well, there's millions of species of life. And some will even say that we're finding hundreds of thousands of new ones every single year. That's because they're talking about bacteria and every possible conceivable type of insect on the face of the earth. And so they're including insects and mollusks and all kinds of things. Of course, you don't need to put mollusks on the ark. They do very fine in muddy water. That's where they're going to be. And so this is very specific that God is saying, here's what you need to bring on the ark. And so when you look at that, if you were to go to the San Diego Zoo, and this is an interesting thing for you, you can go there if you'd like. Uh, It's the world's largest zoo. It's also the world's finest zoo, in my humble opinion. Uh, I don't know of another on the face of the earth, and I've been to quite a few. There are exactly 67 animals whose weight is 2,000 pounds or over. 67. Now remember we discovered last time that you could put 125,000 sheep on the ark. And the reason I'm telling you these things is if you took the 18,000 and you consider that their average size is actually much less than that of a sheep, uh, you would actually not even use 60% of the ark's capacity to put every last one of these animals on the ark today. So they would fit very easily. It only seems impossible because we think about every last bird that we can imagine. We, we think of every last type of cow and every last horse and every last lizard. And you, you start thinking, and you're like, boom, your mind blows up. But God's much wiser than that. And so he programs, uh, because we know full well that most of the species of lizards that we have on the face of the earth are of one basic class and order. They're of a single phylum. So it's very clear that God understood. He programmed the DNA of these animals, and so they only needed to bring a certain number of them onto the ark for there to be the diversity that we see today. And people will say, well, what about, you know, polar bears and penguins? All of those animals, if you take it, matter of fact, you can actually find uh, representations of polar bears within the grizzly family that their DNA is 98.7% the same as a grizzly bear. So it doesn't take a whole lot of genetic variation for you to have a grizzly bear turn into a polar bear. It just depends on where it lives. And the reason it has white furs because it spends its time in, on ice And so as it's hunting, it's going to get very hungry very fast because the seals can see it. And so those things are how God works. He does wonderful, marvelous programming uh, with the Logos. And so God knows what he's doing. He sticks all these animals on the ark, and he programs them into kinds. People will often say, well, what about random, you know, random 
mutations and natural selection, all those kind of things. Look, the easiest way for you to explain that to someone who doesn't believe that the Bible is true is just say it absolutely happens. Because it absolutely happens. Genetic mutations absolutely happen. Natural selection absolutely happens. But it never changes one kind into another kind. It results in beaks getting thicker and longer. It results in the color of fur changing. It results in the length of fur changing. It results in animals being born without fur. It does all kinds of things. But it cannot and has not ever have we seen a single piece of fossil evidence that there has been a change from one kind to another kind. People say, well, what about Archaeopteryx? Archaeopteryx was a bird. It had feathers. It had a face and a beak exactly like we see in vultures today. Very leathery, leather-headed, and a tiny beak. It's a bird. Microscopically examined that fossil over and over and over again, complete with the lines and the veins and the feathers. So it's just a really ugly bird. You see, God knows what he's doing, and as he does what he does, he does it perfectly. And so he programs within the kinds all kinds of genetic variation, including things like migratory instinct, which is going to be very clear that's going on in this particular passage. Because how are all these animals going to know how to find the ark? And we still have some evidence of this today. And we have no scientific explanation for these things. And so I want to look at a couple of these instances tonight. Um, it'll help you kind of understand how exactly and precisely wise God is. Uh, there's a couple of birds, and I'll use the first one tonight, which is the, the golden plover, as you as you think on these names, just remember that uh, you can look these things up for yourself, but I, I will give you the basic nuts and bolts of it tonight. The golden plover is one of the most amazing birds that you'll ever seen. Uh, you see, it migrates annually uh, from Hawaii and up to Alaska, back and forth, and it does so with tremendous precision. And the reason this is important is it has some flight dynamics that we cannot replicate today. If you were to look at modern aircraft, like a jet airplane or a helicopter, most of the time their fuel-to-weight ratio and their energy capacity from the fuel to the burning of the fuel to flight time uh, at the very best is about 5% of their total weight to about 15% of their total weight if you're talking about a fighter jet. So it, it, it's extremely important to recognize that we cannot even replicate today the energy consumption relative to aerodynamic flight, in other words, overcoming drag with lift that that silly bird does as it flies almost 2,500 miles from Alaska to the Hawaiian Islands out in the middle of the Pacific. In order to do that, it has a couple of problems. They are energy and navigation. And you must solve both of them, and you must solve both of them perfectly the very first time. Extremely important to lock that into your head. So if God's talking about things migrating, you know, people say, well, how did the animals know to go where Noah was at? 
Well, if God has left just silly birds to migrate from Alaska to Hawaii, I'm pretty sure he could have left a migratory instinct uh, in just about anything he wants to. So let's look at the golden plover. Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting animal. And so on that flight, it's going to fly about 2,400 miles. It's going to need to beat its wings uh, a little over a quarter of a million times. It's going to fly for at least 88 hours. And as is true with everything that flies, including modern aircraft, there is a minimum speed at which they overcome drag, uh, and so their lift is sufficient to keep them in the air. In other words, they cannot go too slow. And there's also a point at which when they go too fast, they have so much friction that they also burn more fuel. So as you think about these things, God is pretty amazing in how he makes even things like birds. He he does some pretty crazy science by just programming uh, the way that they function. And so when you you look at this, you look at this bird, and, and it starts with about 88 grams of fat on its body. It's not a huge bird. And that 88 grams of fat has to store energy because the, the first law of thermodynamics is energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be converted from one form into another. So you're taking the stored fat and energy and making it kinetic energy by allowing a wing to beat a quarter of a million times for 88 hours without refueling. Now, we can't put any jets in the air and fly them around for 88 hours. Just saying. No matter how good the jet is, it's not, going, it's not staying in the air for 88 hours. Now, granted, we don't have any reason to fly jets that are, you know, this big. But the bottom line is, that bird has to have exactly the right amount of fuel, and it has to start the journey with that fuel, because if you map out a course from Alaska to the Hawaiian Islands, you're going to find out there's no islands in between. So it cannot land, and in fact, the golden plover can't land on water at all. So it has to be able to fly all the way to the Hawaiian Islands, and it cannot make a mistake. Because if you look at its actual fat-burning ratio compared to its ability to flap its wings, it has actually 20% less fuel on its body than it needs to make all those wing beats. So here's another crazy thing for you. They fly in a V formation. How would a bird learn how to fly in a V formation? And and if you want to know why that's important, ask any NASCAR driver why they draft. Because it actually ends up, in this case, causing them to use about 24% less fuel for the same distance of flight, so they take turns with one being in front of another, and they hopscotch back and forth so that they can spend most of their time in the slipstream of the rest of them. And here's what happens. It gives them enough fuel with the same weight in that fat to get them to the Hawaiian Islands plus about 20%. That's the first problem. That's pretty cool. We still can't do it with technology. We actually haven't even gotten close. So here's an example from the bird world. That 88-hour flight taken care of by less than 70 grams of fat. Now, I don't know if you... That's a ball about that big. About the size of a golf ball. If you were to make it just Crisco. Which usually, if we eat, we'll end up about right here. If he didn't fly in a V formation, 
he would crash into the ocean about eight, eight, probably 80 to 90 miles short. God's word leaves, leaves us uh, little doubt that he's programming these things. The second thing, and there are all kinds of birds that do this, by the way. You can, it's crazy how Japanese snipe, the red-tailed swift, there's several species that make these transoceanic flights that uh, you look at, it's just like, how in the world would they know how to do that? Okay, so there's the first problem. God solves it. They have just enough fuel, and they fly in such a way as to reduce the amount of drag that they have by drafting. Now again, bear in mind, got to be perfect the first time. There's never been like a super golden plover that has like extra fat because in aviation what happens is the bigger the plane gets, the more drag it has, the more fuel it needs, so it becomes a compounding problem instead of a solution. That's why there's kind of an ultimate size right now to jumbo jets. They can only get so big and after a while you can't store enough fuel on them. For those of you that have ever seen the SR-71 Blackbird, there's so much fuel stored in that when it's sitting on the ground, it used to leak because they had to put fuel in the wings, they had to put fuel in the fuselage, they had to put fuel everywhere because it burned so much fuel to make one trip to fly over Russia and get back to the United States. We still can't replicate that. The second, and maybe the more interesting one, is the navigational miracle. Because how would they know to fly out in the middle of the Pacific Island? How many of you know that the Hawaiian Islands are the most isolated island chain in the world? They are the most isolated island chain in the world. They are the furthest from anywhere of any point on the globe. So when you go to the Hawaiian Islands, you are as far away from people as you can get. Except all the people go there, and then you're not far from the people anymore. It's a navigational miracle. They have to know exactly where they're going. And if you start in Alaska, and for those of you that do any type of navigation, whether it's on ocean or air or whatever, one-tenth of one degree of arc, if you're off when you leave Alaska, could make you miss the Hawaiian Islands by as much as 1,100 miles. So you've got to have the right direction. You have to fly at the right altitude because the higher you go, the harder it is on your body. And the lower you go, the thicker the air is. So you've got some issues. You have to fly at the right height altitude. That's why if you're in a, normally in a commercial jet, most of the time you'll look on your little screen, you know, on the back of the seat, and it says you're at somewhere between 35 and 45,000 feet. It's optimal cruising altitude. Same is true for these little guys. Their optimal cruising altitude is about 850 feet off the water. That's their sweet spot. And so what about the navigation? If you start looking at how God gets them there, he does something that is amazing because this we also still can't replicate. How many of you have a car with GPS navigation in it or use the GPS on your cell phone? You pull out your cell phone, you press that little button, you go, I can't believe that thing knows where I'm at. That's still not accurate enough for you to get to the Hawaiian Islands from Alaska. You'd still miss it. Because it has to recorrect. And when you get into those little dead spots where there's no satellites over you, you can kind of move all over the place. In this little guy's case, that would cause him to burn up some more fuel and boop, drop right into the sea. 
So God's marvelous in how he creates the animal world to do what he wants it to do. He takes care of, so when Jesus says, not a sparrow falls from the sky, but what my father knows, he's reminding us of a truth. I know exactly what I built into these little guys. I know why they do what they do, and I know how they do it. You may not, but he does. I may not, but he does. The sense of direction, it was believed for a long time that this was a learned behavior. That like mom and dad would just fly Junior down to the islands. It's like, okay, this is the way it goes. And they'd get there and they'd go to a luau. And then they'd fly back after they'd gotten warm. But they soon realized that not only could that not be the case, in fact, the navigation part of it was so much more difficult than even the fuel consumption of it, Each bird actually has a specific sense of direction that relies not only on itself, but on the direction of the others. Because if one starts flying off direction, they might follow. They actually course correct by themselves, individually. So if you're a sailor and you're out on the ocean, that's why you have your little Iran or your radar and you're following it and you're trying to see where it's sweeping and see if there's anybody else out there. Well, this silly little... Golden plover does the same thing, except in a much more intimate way. And so they they started doing these blind tests where they would actually take birds, and I know this sounds cruel, but they would dope them, they would put them inside of boxes, they would take those boxes and put them on a gimbal. How many of you have ever watched the NASA test where they put the guys in the spinning chair and it goes all kinds of different directions? They would put the birds on a gimbal with a motor on it so that it constantly was moving while they were being moved in a, inside of a black box. They would take them and release them out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and they would be able to course correct from anywhere in the Pacific Ocean and still make it to the Hawaiian Islands. The same is true for the stone chat. The same is true for the snow bunting. The same is true for Arctic terns. They figured out that these birds actually know where they are at any point on the face of the earth, so much so that when they started doing it with Arctic terns, they actually let them go in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and they would make their way back to either their home in Wales, if it was the season to fly north, or all the way to South America. So God pre-programmed all these animals to do what he wants them to do for their benefit, And that's why it's important. You see, God has made it so that these animals are protected by him. They have actual knowledge that we still don't know how they got it. That's because he pre-programmed them. He knows exactly what's going on. So whether it's the golden plover, stone chat, or turns, it's all part of God's plan. His sovereignty reigns and rules over all creation. He, he, he doesn't make mistakes. And as they use up their fuel, as they navigate across the sea, as they take on these what seems like impossible tasks and they do them almost effortlessly, don't you think God has control of your life? If he programs the ability to fly from Alaska to the Hawaiian Islands and back, 
And these birds can be put inside of a black box and rotated for days so that there is no possible way there's any physical reference to any point on the face of the earth and they're in the open ocean where there's no reference points. They can't see stars. They have no way of even remembering that information. And then make it back. If God cares that much, don't you think he's probably able to guide your life? Able to get you home? I would suggest to you that he is. To save the righteous. To give man a second chance. To, to be what he was supposed to be all along, which is a steward over the creation. God programmed the animals with this logos. If he put his signature as imprimatur on them and then simply said about this one man who's also mentioned in the Hall of Faith that Noah did what God asked him to do. I want to do what a God like that tells me to do. Because if he can program that kind of information into a bird, he must have something really special for us in whom he breathed his life-giving spirit. He gave us an additional level of understanding of who he is. Gave us a place to connect with him. And so I pray that you too will recognize that God's sovereignty uh, works in perfect concert with our choices. But God expects us to do what he's asked us to do. And when we do, we have his blessing and benefit. And all the other stuff that comes in between, uh, the Lord's got it all under control. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray and have the worship team come back out. Pastors will come up front and communion will be available to you as we worship. Trust him. Just simply follow what he says, knowing He actually has a plan for everything. Amen. Father, thank you for tonight. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, pour out upon us afresh and anew. Lord, a work, we thank you for your wonderful logos, programmed into just the beautiful birds that we hear sing in the trees. Lord, that they would know how to get safely home. You certainly must have a plan for us to also get safely home. Uh, You've given us a heart to know you. You've given us a desire to seek after you. And Lord, we pray that we do that with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, all of our strength. Lord, help us to seek you and your ways. Help us to be obedient like Noah. Lord, just do what you say. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.